As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello again. It is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode ninety, and today I'm going to be sharing with you five assessments that I want you to get into the habit of performing every time you interact with your patient, so that you can a get into a solid routine, so you never miss these key assessments, and b you start getting used to the idea of always being watchful for changes in a patient's condition. So before we get into that, let's do a quick listener shout out to Mama Medic. And I hope I am not repeating myself. I realized last week I did the same listener shout out that I had done from the week before, but that's okay because I really appreciate it. So Mama Medic, if I've done this one before, it's just because I love you that much. Okay, so Mama Medic says, I will start nursing school in a matter of days and have found this podcast to be extremely helpful. I listen every chance I have at work, at home, while commuting, and at the gym. Nurse Mo covers relevant topics in a way that is both enjoyable and educational. Her podcast allows me to learn while doing mundane daily tasks that are necessary, but now more enjoyable with her knowledge, humor, and pearls of wisdom. The advice offered for pre-nursing students is excellent. I'm already practicing her tips and feel less anxious starting my program. Take advantage of all this podcast and the Straight A Nursing student website has to offer. You will love it. Thank you, Nurse Mo. Okay, Mama Medic, thank you so much for that glowing endorsement. And I wish you the very best of luck. And please reach out and let us know how your program is going. I think you probably have already started by now. So that is great. I would love to hear from you. Okay, you guys. So let's get into talking about patient assessment. And we talked a few weeks back about your head-to-toe assessment, and that was in episode 82. And today, it's not necessarily talking about the head-to-toe assessment, but how you as the nurse are always and constantly assessing your patient. So there's five things that I want you to get into the habit of assessing every time you interact with your patient. Um, Obviously, assessment is the most important skill that you as the nurse possess. You're going to be starting your shift with a head-to-toe assessment and maybe repeating that at scheduled intervals depending on your unit policy and your patient condition, but that is not the only time you're assessing your patient. You're assessing them all the time. So regardless of whether your patient is in the hospital for a surgery, came in for abdominal pain or a pneumonia, 
If you can do these five simple quick assessments every time you walk in their room, you're going to learn a lot of information about your patient and always kind of be on top of your game with knowing what's going on with them. So of course, I don't want you to limit yourself to these five things. If your patient requires more, you're going to do more. This is what I would consider the basic minimum assessment you'll do with every interaction. If you need more data from your patient, obviously you're going to get it. But if there aren't a lot of changes, maybe these five things will suffice until you get a chance to do that next full set of vitals or focused or even full head to toe assessment. So the number one thing, and these are in no order, uh, the number one thing is assessing for their pain. So I'm not saying every time you walk in the room, like say you're in the room five times in one hour, asking them their pain level every time, that gets really old. Um, You will have to document their pain level at the required interval interval for your facility and after you give pain medication, and that would be using a pain scale or a nonverbal scale with your patient, whatever's most appropriate. But I want you to watch your patient and how they respond to their pain and the interventions that you did for their pain or helped them do for their pain. So watch how they move. Are they able to take deep breaths? Maybe earlier they weren't, but now they can. Are they guarding? Are they limiting their movement? Are they grimacing? Are they moaning? Are they able to participate in a distraction activity like watching the TV or reading a book or playing a game or texting on their phone? You're going to be looking for signs of pain with every interaction. So if you see that they could be having pain or you suspect they're having pain, uh, maybe you got them into a position, you know, a half hour ago, an hour ago, and you come back and they haven't moved. Likely they haven't moved because it hurts. So assess if you think they could be having pain, definitely ask if it's your Uh, time frame where you need to reassess it for your documentation, definitely ask. A lot of patients will refuse medication because they're afraid of getting addicted. They don't like the way it makes them feel. It could make them nauseous. It could make them sleepy and they want to stay awake. You will be doing a lot of patient education on pain. One of the things that you need to let your patients know and the reason why we take pain so seriously in the hospital couple of reasons is because pain will impede mobility. And when patients are not mobile, they're not exercising their lungs. And then things like pneumonia can set in. Um, When they're immobile, they're at higher risk for pressure-related injury. When they're immobile, they will get deconditioned so quickly. You would be amazed at how quickly a patient gets deconditioned if they're not up and moving around. And then there's also that blood clot risk, right? That deep vein thrombosis risk for patients who are immobile. So immobility related to pain is something that you can definitely treat. And I'm not saying that it's always opioids. The um, interventions can be things like Tylenol, Toradol, or ibuprofen. Those are non 
opioids. You could use ice, you could use heat, you could use positioning, you could use range of motion. There's a lot of things, support, um, pillow support, a lot of different things that can be done to treat pain besides just going straight for the narcotics. So assessing your patient for pain and their response to pain interventions is key assessment that I want you to get used to doing. The other one that I want you to always be watchful for is their respiratory status. So I'm not saying pull out your stethoscope every time you walk in the room and make them breathe deeply as you listen to all lung fields. You'll be doing that with your focused assessments and your head-to-toe assessments, but I want you to watch and listen to your patient. And You'll be able to tell, and I talked about this last week when we talked about oxygenation, is the more you spend time with patients, the more you assess patients of all different shapes and sizes and ages and comorbidities and diseases, you'll get used to seeing what healthy versus not healthy looks like. And as you get used to seeing what not healthy looks like, you can clue in more quickly to signs that a patient is in distress. So you'll be watching your patient and noticing, are they Having a hard time breathing, has their work of breathing increased? When we say work of breathing, we're talking about um, accessory muscle use, diaphragmatic breathing. Think about when you have just sprinted for half a mile, assuming you can sprint half a mile. I don't know if I could, but you've just run um, down the street for some reason and you're huffing and a puffing, your work of breathing is increased. If somebody driving by saw you, they would notice that you were huffing and puffing and having increased work of breathing. So that's what you'll see in your patient. They'll look like they're working to breathe. Are they breathing really fast? Are they breathing really, really slow? Are they breathing really deeply? Or are they breathing very shallowly? Um, Is their breath labored? Is it noisy? Sometimes you can hear wheezes from the doorway. Like that's not a good sign. Are they gasping for breath? Are they able to speak in full sentences? Or are they having to pause and take a breath after every fourth or fifth or sixth word? Are they sleep propped up on their pillows, like three or four pillows? Are they assuming a tripod position? Are they doing pursed lip breathing? Are their nares flaring? Um, Any yes answers to those would be a sign that you need to do a more in-depth assessment. That's not necessarily all of the signs of respiratory distress, but those are some key ones. Um, Skin signs would be another one. If they're hooked up to a continuous pulse oximetry, obviously, if that data is showing you low levels, that would require a more in-depth assessment. But even without fancy monitoring equipment, you can look at a patient and see um, if they're having more or less respiratory distress. The other thing that I want you to look at on your patient are their skin signs. Assessing the patient's skin and their skin signs is a quick way to monitor their cardiovascular and their respiratory status. So a patient who's warm, dry, and the appropriate color for their race is a patient that is within defined limits. But if they're diaphoretic, If they're mottled, if they're pale, dusky, or clammy to the touch, very warm, flushed, these are all things that need to be investigated further. So assessing their skin signs is just sometimes as simple as just looking at them. Other times, 
When you're doing your full head to toe and your focused assessment, you'll be removing gowns and getting down to the skin at the trunk and the legs. But just in general, when you're looking at them, look at their face, look at their hands, their arms, and you're looking for abnormal skin signs. The other assessment in this group of five key, quick, easy assessments that you're going to do just whenever you're in the room for whatever reason is looking at the patient's urine output. So if your patient has an indwelling catheter, a Foley catheter, or some kind of external collection device like a Purewick or condom catheter, or there's this new one for the gentleman called the Liberator, I think. We just learned about that the other day when I was um, helping out in a skills lab. And you can see their um, urine output more continuously, more accurately. What you're looking for is a minimum of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour. That comes out roughly to 30 mils per hour, but if you wanted to get super exact, it's 0.5 mils per kilogram per hour. So I'm not saying you're going to go in the room and let's say you're in the room four times in one hour. You're not going to be measuring it all those times. You'll measure it um, if it's an indwelling catheter, depending on what's going on with your patient. You may be measuring it hourly. You may be measuring it every two hours, probably in a critical care environment, not any less frequently than that. Um, but if you're just in there, you know, all the time, you're not necessarily measuring it every single time, but you're noticing it. And you're noticing if it's increasing or decreasing, if its color is changing, all those kinds of things is what you're watching for. If your patient is using a urinal or bedside commode, you're not going to be getting that constant information about their urine output, but you do want to kind of have it in your head that, okay, it's been five hours since Bob voided. Let's go see if he needs to void. Maybe I can help him stand up to do that or whatever, get to the bathroom or whatever it is. But you want to be thinking about their urine output because that tells you a lot about their end organ perfusion. And then the other thing that I want you to get used to assessing on your patients with every interaction is their level of consciousness. So a change in a patient's level of consciousness is absolutely a key sign that something has uh, changed. Something may be going wrong with your patient. Are they alert and oriented? Are you able to have a conversation with the patient that makes sense? Do they answer questions appropriately? Are they following commands? As you learn the skill of assessment, you'll learn that you don't have to be so formal when you're assessing if a patient can follow commands as show me two fingers, show me a thumbs up. It doesn't have to be that um, scripted. If you were doing a neuro exam on a patient with a neurological injury, you may choose to do something very distinct and very basic like that. But a lot of times I'll ask them um, to see if they'll follow commands. Can you hold your arm up so I can take your, you know, get your blood pressure cuff on? If they hold their arm up, they're following commands. Can you open your mouth so I'll play and I'll take your temperature? If they open their mouth, they're following commands. Um, can you tell me what time it is? You're also assessing, 
Are they able to follow commands? And how is their vision? And how is their ability to, um, you know, look at a clock and tell time? So you'll get used to determining if a patient is following commands without having to be so by the book with the show me two fingers, which is one of those just common assessment things that you'll see in textbooks. If the patient doesn't follow commands um, or takes a lot of prompting to follow commands, maybe they can only follow one direction at a time, then you will probably want to assess further and do a more thorough neuro evaluation, more thorough neuro exam. And as you're going through your clinical rotations, I want you to practice incorporating these five simple assessments into your patient interactions. I'm not saying that you have to go and chart on all five of these things every time you leave the room because that would get incredibly cumbersome. But what you're doing as you do these assessments is you are developing a general sense and familiarity with your patient. And you'd be really surprised at how much data you can learn about a patient just from looking at these core things. And they will become absolute second nature, I promise. And then before I let you go for the day, let's talk a little bit about trying to cluster your nursing interventions. And the reason for this is twofold. One, it provides less disruptions for the patient. And secondly, it helps you with your time management as well. So if you've got, you know, five patients and you're hopping into each room to do one thing, you're going to be like a pinball hopping back and forth from room to room to the supply room, to the nourishment room, to the patient's room, back to the supply room, back to the patient's room, back to the get a blanket, back to the other patient's room, back to the nourishment room, back to the patient's room, you're going to have an absolutely bonkers shift. So one of the things that I try to teach the new nurses to do is to cluster your interventions. And when I was a brand new nurse working in the intensive care unit where the patients required a lot of care, as I found that I felt like I was all over the place because I'd go in to do something and then come back out and do my charting and then remember, oh yeah, I need to go do that other thing. Then I'd go back in and come out and I realized, okay, this is getting ridiculous. I'm popping in there like every three minutes. And I started by taking a little post-it note. And at the time we had little um, tables, like bedside tables, but they were outside each patient room because we were on paper charting at the time. And it's not that I'm super ancient, it's that our hospital was the very last in our system to adopt um, computerized charting. So when I started as a nurse in 2011, we were still using paper charting. So we would have the patient's chart right there and our flow sheets, and we would do our charting right there outside the patient's room um, so that all of our stuff was close by. So on that table, I would have a little post-it note. And as I thought of what I needed to do for the patient, I'd write it down. And then I would think, what else can I do while I'm in there that I need to get done? And I'd make a little list. And as long as the patient didn't need something urgent, like obviously if they were desaturating or having issues, I would go in immediately. But if I could cluster at least five things on my little list, then I would go do them all at once. And I found that that helped tremendously with my time management and learning how to have an effective workflow um, with a patient. So 
I call it giving yourself a high five, and I talk about it in my book, Nursing School Thrive Guide. So if you guys haven't um, seen that book or know what I'm talking about, it's a book that I wrote for nursing students. It is available on Amazon if you search for my name or you just search for Nursing School Thrive Guide, it will come up. And I hope to actually be doing a second edition maybe by the end of this year. I'm really hoping that I can do that. Once I graduate from my master's program, I hope to do a lot of things for you guys. But anyway, grab the Nursing School Thrive Guide if you're looking for a little bit more of a step-by-step how to survive in nursing school kind of thing. So in that book, I talk about giving yourself a high five. And that just basically means that you're going to try to aim to do five things when you're in the room. And one of those things could be this this quickie assessment, right? But uh, other things that you could cluster are, let's say you've got to take the patient's blood sugar. Um, So you're going to get your supplies, take in your supplies to check his blood sugar. And also maybe it would be a good time to assist them to the commode or help them with the bedpan. Maybe they asked for some water earlier or you noticed that their water pitcher was low. Bring their water in with you on that trip. Um, Maybe you bring your dressing change supplies if you know that they have a dressing change that needs to be done. Um, Maybe they're... uh, linens need to be changed or whatever it is. Think of like five things or close to that that you can do while you're in there. Maybe it's time to take their temp or grab another set of vitals or reassess their blood pressure after you gave them their metoprolol. Whatever it is, as much as you can cluster things together, your workflow will improve and the patient's ability to maybe... um, Rest will also improve as well, um, or just have some quiet time without people coming in and out of the room constantly. So um, think about that as you go about your day. It's okay as a student to not fully understand what else needs to be done because you don't have that clinical experience to think ahead that far. And that's fine. That's why as a student, hopefully you only have a couple of patients, especially in the beginning. Maybe as you progress, you have more. But in the beginning, you guys are going to be super slow. Um, Somebody just reached out to me this morning through my Crucial Concepts Facebook group. If you guys know about my online course, Crucial Concepts Bootcamp, it's for incoming nursing students to really amp up the, you know, your readiness for nursing school. And I have a private Facebook group for that course so that I can provide the students with a little extra love and support. And she reached out to me and said, um, how do you deal with this feeling that you've got so many tasks to do and you start to panic because you need to slow down because you absolutely don't know every step. You might need to look up a reference or use a reference, and that's obviously going to slow you down, and how do you manage that? And so my advice to her was, when you're a student, you can be slow. Redefine what slow means to you and then slow it down even more because you absolutely have to be safe with your patients and with your self. So if you don't understand What else is going to have to be done half an hour from now that you could cluster? That's okay. But as you are doing things in your patient's room and you notice that you have to go right back in to do one other thing that you maybe forgot, that's when you're going to start learning, okay, I could have clustered that together when I went in there to change his um, or empty his colostomy. 
I I should have um, checked his blood pressure and vitals at the same time. Like, why didn't I do that? That's just because you were so focused on your task at hand, you didn't think about the other things. And that's okay. But just start paying attention to that and start thinking of ways that you could cluster things together. And then the other thing that will really help you with your time management and having your workflow go smoothly is knowing what something as simple as knowing what supplies you need to take into the room is huge. Um, Even as an experienced nurse, I will forget supplies all the time and dang it, now I got to go back out and go all the way down to the supply room and get whatever. And if you're all gowned up, that's especially frustrating. But um, just paying attention to what supplies you need to bring into the room. And with that, you know, when you're doing your first head to toe assessment, if you have time, I like to do what I call a room assessment as well where I look at, you know, I make sure that all my safety equipment is functional and present if I need additional safety equipment, like if they have a chest tube or something. And then I also take note of what supplies are already in the room. And that just prevents you from going and grabbing a whole bunch of stuff that you don't actually need. I think once I had a patient in the ICU and I opened the little bedside table and I counted, I swear, I'm not exaggerating, like 15 rolls of tape. Like, why? I feel like every shift somebody brought in a roll of tape for this patient. And, you know, when that patient left, that all had to be thrown away. So just things like that to be mindful of, knowing what supplies you need, knowing what you could cluster, and getting used to to doing that clustering and doing these intervention or these assessments with every interaction is really going to help you feel like you know your patient and you've got a little bit of control over your workflow. So I hope that was helpful for you guys and I hope that you're having a great week. And next week on the podcast, let's see what we'll be talking about. We're going to be looking at a drug. I know you guys love pharmacology. It's one of the classes that you express the most stress usually with because it's hard class for a lot of students. So we're going to be talking about a drug called haloperidol or haldol. And there's some key things that you definitely need to know about this medication. So come back next week and we will be talking about that. And I just wanted to remind you guys that if you didn't hear the episode a few weeks back, there is still time to get 30% off the electrolytes bundle. And I will have the link to that in the um, in the notes below this uh, podcast on your podcast player and then also on the website if you just go there or you're listening to it from the website. And the promo code promo code is love nursing 2020. And that promo code code is good until March 31st, 2020 to get 30% off the electrolytes bundle through my website. So I'll include the link. Remember the promo code love nursing 2020 and get that bundle for 30% off. It's great. And um, it does a lot more than just tell you the highs and lows. It tells you um, the key functions of the electrolytes and what they do in the body and what happens when it's too high or when it's too low and why you care and what nursing interventions and monitoring you want to do for a patient who has that particular electrolyte imbalance. So again, guys, thank you so much for spending your precious free time with me. And I will see you back here next week to teach you what I know about haloperidol, also known as Haldol. Okay, see you guys then. Bye-bye. 
This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.